You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season seven, episode three. Rituals are symbolic acts we perform to signify a meaningful event. A ritual could mark a young person's passage into adulthood, a commemoration of a historic event, perhaps a marriage ceremony or a baby's consecration to God. People engage in rituals for a variety of reasons. Rituals can serve to alleviate grief, to express love, to boost confidence before a sporting event, or to make peace with a part of our history we need to leave behind. Earlier this year, I had the opportunity to talk with an artist who has found a niche of combining ritual making with performance art in ways that foster healing and inspire a more creative approach to everyday life. Heather Stringer is a therapist, artist, and ritual maker. She is a licensed mental health counselor in Seattle, Washington, and a fellow with the Allender Center. She completed her MA in Counseling Psychology at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology and the Externship Program at the Allender Center. Heather has a practice of creating narrative-informed trauma therapy, as well as creating rituals for people marking a significant event in their life. Heather believes that when we are intentional about engaging the particularities of our bodies, memories, and stories, an opening for healing and change are possible. Once we move through an opening, she says, there is a need to honor and mark the change, better known as ritual making. Rituals allow us to embody the change. We're then able to better remember our lives when we have seen, felt, tasted, heard, and touched the markings along the way. I thought this conversation would be an interesting focus for us during this time of finding ourselves a little outside the norm of our usual habits and daily patterns. Perhaps establishing some new rhythms and rituals may help bring a sense of groundedness while the rest of life is a bit chaotic. In our community here, we've been hosting online communion gatherings each Friday night to foster community for the breath and the clay during this crazy time of quarantine. The simple ritual of receiving bread and wine together seems to pierce through the global isolation and bring a sense of unity and identification. If you'd like to join us, you can follow the link in the show notes of this episode to learn how. This is my conversation with performance artist and ritual maker, Heather Stringer. Heather, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the Makers and Mystics podcast today. I'm excited to have you on the show. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Tell me some about what that means to you to be a ritual maker. How does that play out in your life? Yeah, definitely. So uh, a few years ago, I think it was about four years ago, a woman reached out to me and she was trying to understand her her birthday. And she said, I know that this is more meaningful than maybe other birthdays. And I've been doing some personal work around my femininity and the ways in which it's been kind of outcast or been an outcast. And so she's like, I really want to find a way to honor this. And so we had some mutual friends and she came my way. And so we began a conversation, um, learning a little bit more of her narrative, where she's coming from, the in which femininity was just completely absent in her family life. And then how she wanted to have embraced it more and embody it probably more than she ever has. And so together we just created more or less like a offshoot of a feminist Seder meal. Mm -hmm. And so she invited people that were dear to her to witness and hear about her story and the journey that she's been on. And we use, you know, cedar oil was really important. Salt water was really important. And we incorporated those elements 
to help signify to herself and others that this is this is really important and significant. And I need to be witnessed because I'm going to go out into the world that has seen me in one particular way or has pigeonholed me in one particular way, athlete or more masculine. And I need to know that I can carry this into the world and having kind of a cloud of witnesses, if you will, will help. And so afterwards, it was the sweetest time. And afterwards, I was like, what the, what the hell was that? Mm-hmm. And I think over the next few weeks, I realized, I'm like, that was a ritual. That was something that had all the elements of, of ritual making. And so that became kind of this entry point. Um, I think my backstory has, there were a lot of arrows pointing to this, this work of ritual making with my art background and kind of some of my sensibilities as a human. But then it began this very intriguing process for me to see like what is it that we're doing in our lives that we just pass through or or we go around significant events rather than through them and how do we find ways to creatively engage that's not just intellectual but that is more soul and body um, that lead the way so that our minds can actually almost take a seat back and learn to really embody like what is what is my life saying to me so yeah that that was the beginnings of Mm -hmm. virtual making well, you mentioned your background in art, and for me, art and ritual making would, would go hand in hand. Tell me some about how those two worlds intersect in your life. Yeah, so I started as a painting major in my undergrad, and I don't know if it was a matter of, you know, I had a, a figure drawing teacher that would look at my stuff and say, this looks like sheet. <laughs> <laughs> Or just the fact that the canvas started feeling really confining for me. I felt there was a certain constraint there that I think I'm, I'm more of a physical person and I think I express more with using my body versus just my hands and eyes. And I happened to sign up for a performance art class and I was, I was kind of blown away because there was the sense of it's non-theatrical, which is the way that I was trained. So it's not you're not putting on a persona, but you're allowing your body to undergo a thought, a concept, an experience in space and time. And so that began this like kind of experiment of, oh, my body becomes the canvas and I get to engage people in a way where the audience is no longer just a spectator kind of consuming, Mm -hmm. but actually it's about, you know, the interaction between audience and artists that Mm -hmm. where the art begins to form and take shape. And that to me became a really interesting idea. Just what are we co-creating together and and how do I lead and help facilitate an experience? Mm -hmm. And so I think through that class and for other classes where like there's something very transformative, transcendent that happens in those spaces that I wasn't having with uh, my canvas and Mm -hmm. my paintbrush or even photography. So that, and then I think with that, there's, you know, certain actions that you do, there's certain repetitions that you do. And, and that feels very ritualistic mm-hmm. where there's something of like, what do you do? What, what happens when you do something over and over again with like intention, not to dissociate, but with a certain intention, like what happens there? And, and I think there's something that you, you move through that is really significant. Mm-hmm. I had one experience where I was doing a performance piece and I realized like, this is not good. <laughs> <laughs> This is no good. And yet, so the shame, I was feeling a lot of shame. And yet to walk away, to like end the piece and walk away would probably be more shaming. I would feel more shameful. And so I had to, in that moment, like move through that shameful moment and then still create. And it was such a phenomenal moment because I I realized that I could have foreclosed, but I had to actually move through it. And in that, I could find myself and create something else 
that I, ha- I probably wouldn't have if I didn't have people watching and being part of it. Mm-hmm. And so that's also, I think, a piece of ritual making where you do have to move through certain things, whether it's some fear and anxiety, in order to come out with more meaning, um, with more orientation of this is where my life is, this is where I want to be, where I want to head. So those two, those also dovetail, I think, together as well. Mm-hmm. Would you say that ritual making helps to ground us in our experience or that ritual making would be a tool to help us understand our own narratives and our own life stories? 100%. Yeah, I, I see it as our orientation. I see it as it's this place, yeah, to ground, to deepen our the rhythms of our life. But I think I think it's just with our lives, we're, we're busy, it's technology is wonderful, but it also can be really intrusive. And I think we have a hard time, you know, creating boundaries. Uh, so it does, it really calls us to like, ask, like, where are you right now? And where have you been? And then like, where, where do you want to go? So it has this kind of past, present, future framework. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I do think it has a, it has a grounding, a definite grounding effect. I'm really curious to know how the objects involved in the rituals play into it. You know, because I always think of objects being a part of whether it's something simple as lighting a candle before you sit down to write or whether it's whatever it may be. How do the objects interact with the ritual itself? I mean, depending on the narrative. So when I sit down with a person, I am diving into, again, where have you been? Like, what's, what's the past? What does the past say about you? And then also, like, what are you wanting for now? Like, for this moment, like what is it that you're needing? What is it that you're hoping to experience afterwards, during and afterwards? And so the objects are very contextual. And I think they can be spontaneous. You know, there's sometimes I use dirt often. I feel like there's something about reconnecting with the earth that feels mm-hmm. really significant. So there's a variety of ways of using that. So, you know, with one woman who had lost her father and we were using the dirt in one way. It was very. It was. It was for a different purpose or meaning. But then the dirt became very much about the burial of her dad, which wasn't the original intention. And so, as she was holding on to this this dirt, she was immediately brought back to burying her father. And then we poured water over her hands afterwards. And so she had this experience of like releasing him that she she almost felt like the heaviness of the dirt was too much. So again, kind of that, that reversal of energy where you're feeling the weight of something and then there's the action, the object that helps bring relief or a sensation that is soothing for someone. So this seems to me then like it very much ties in with the creative process because even what you're saying, it's a very symbolic process. It's like... Mm-hmm. They're very tangible metaphors is, is the phrase that comes to mind for me. Yeah, definitely. And the metaphors, though, I think I try and hold my hands very open when I'm performing a ritual for someone, that there's going to be spontaneity that I, I always invite into the process. Mm-hmm. You know, And whether it's the witnesses as well, the people that are a part of it, where I like to say you know, the front part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, like wants us to not to make mistakes and wants us to do the right thing. And it gets in the way. And so how do we begin to suppress it, you know, and, and allow for the other parts of our brain that allow for creativity, allow for some more of the autobiographical elements to show up so that we're in a different rhythm than trying to do it right. Mm-hmm. So the the hope is that it's, it both is in some ways literal, but then also 
it, again, the spontaneity of it taking on a different, a different meaning that was needed that I didn't even know. So that that's some of the, again, yeah, the openness of what could happen here. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I love this idea. And you know your background you you have a background as an artist as a performance artist but also as a mental health counselor and as a therapist and mm-hmm. i know you've got a very spiritual background to you as well so it's like all these things kind of come together in this it makes so much sense and anybody that listens to makers and mystics would know that I say all the time, creativity is one of the core attributes of what it means to be human. And I mm-hmm. see in this how that deeper part of us as creative human beings dovetails into the ritual making and how this can help us understand our own stories. Can you tell me some about how ritual making helps us navigate through some of the difficulties of our past, maybe some of the failures that we've been through as you've worked with clients who've come to you and you've helped make rituals for them. Mm-hmm. How does this help navigate through some of those painful experiences? Yeah, I had I had a client who was really struggling with infertility and you know, she had a deep longing to become a mother and there was this sense of I need to do something more than just talk you know, more than just kind of face to face, but that there was something about using symbol, using the body, using our senses. Like I think there's a a, a sensual knowing that needs to be part of of how we're experiencing or part of how we move through something. And so we created a ritual around her uterus and like, how do we help her to have a certain loosening of certain curses that have been upon her around becoming a mother Mm -hmm. or certain kind of condemnations around her body and what it's capable or not capable of. Mm -hmm. So there is this movement into like, what do you hold that you haven't really put a lot of language to, or you haven't allowed yourself to kind of undergo in a more bodily sense. And so that, that to me is this, this loosening element to ritual making where there's, there's so much that we carry, I think. And, and of course, this is more of the therapist in me speaking now where, yeah, there's countless stories, countless glances, words, you know, nonverbal ways that we've been communicated to that we're either too much or that what we're bringing is not enough. And of course, there's more specificity to each of those stories, but we carry that. And so when we get into situations where we're cornered with my life's not going the way that I want it to, or it's gone in a way that I have no idea what to make of it, then I think the ritual is really important to begin to loosen and open up. Like, what is it that you have been carrying that is not true, that you have taken on, but it's more of you being a recipient of people's envy, people's uncertainty of how to deal with you, you know, whether it's as a kid or as an adolescent. And then I think we make a lot of decisions, you know, whether it's conscious or not, that I will not be that way anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so with this woman, there was, there was a lot of engaging of how much she's held against herself mm-hmm. and against her, her uterus. So finding actions that help us loosen it and, and rename her and her uterus um, and her call to, to becoming a mother. So that, yeah, those are mm-hmm. some of the ways in which the the past and it's it's good it it seems like the actions actually help us to make it tangible or the actions help us to it becomes real it's not just an idea or a conversation at that point it's something yeah. about the the tangibility of it that that seems important to me yeah yeah and there's something odd about it like i was i was thinking about it today it's like 
it's odd. And I think we need to do more odd things because mm-hmm. it, it almost snaps us out of a certain groove that we've been creating and, and falling into over and over again. You know, the repetition that's almost like a lulling into <laughs> no man's land. And so even the other day, we were at the swimming pool with my kids and I was having such a lovely time with them. And I was thinking through like, you know, all these moments where I'm either agitated or I've been angry or, you know, just controlling and, and knowing in myself, like, I don't want to do, I don't want to do that, but it keeps happening. But in this moment of like sweetness and goodness, I was like, I need to mark this moment. Like I need to do something odd in order for it to really be in me so that I can come back to it in moments when I'm wanting to be really controlling or angry and say, no, I remember like, this is not how I want to be with my kids. And so in that moment, I went to the drinking fountain and I took a bunch of the water with my hands. I just splashed my face and splashed my neck and my shoulders. And then like, it's cold. And I want to remember like, this is worthy of continuing to cultivate and to come back to you. And since then I've been, I've been surprised. I'm like, I've had certain moments and my mind goes, you know, it's not even just the cold water. But there is like the scene. I, I immediately remember the scene of being at the pool and the sensations and the smells and the goodness. And so I think that that's part of, yeah, part of what we need is the oddity of mm-hmm. kind of going outside of the norm. <laughs> oh, you're speaking my heart language. Oh, <laughs> that's one of my questions is, is how rituals can help foster deeper creativity in us. And even just what you said, it calls us or even shocks us out of the norm, whether it's cold water being splashed on our face or just being intentional to step out of the malaise of everyday experience sometime. Tell me, how does ritual making in your own life help you foster a deeper sense of creativity? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I've done with my kids is that I knew that when I had my first child, I wanted to ritualize this notion that our bodies are good. And so I was like, I'm going to do this ritual where I am intentionally kind of just softly touching their faces, their arms, their legs, their feet and saying, good body, good body, good body. And for them to know that that's, that's where we begin. And that, I mean, again, there's, there's something of that being a touch point to more creativity. So then creating prints around the good, like good body, creating mantras around good body, you know, and I think it, it becomes almost like an entry point into what else can I do with this, this notion or this, this action, which then led me to a performance art piece with four or five other diverse women telling their body stories and mirroring each other as the, the stories told on over audio and we're mirroring the actions that pair with the woman's story. So um, hopefully that makes sense. But the woman that's, that, who's telling the story, she's moving. And then we're mirroring those movements. And there's something, again, really transcendent about that, that moment of bearing witness, but then also joining in on the motion of the struggle it's been to call our bodies good the stories that have told us otherwise about our bodies and then how are we moving towards together calling each other's bodies good. So again, it started from like seven, eight years ago to then it moving into a completely different thing. So there, yeah, I think, I think it's a great touch point to further creativity. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would do homilies for my church mm-hmm. doing performance art instead of preaching. So, <laughs> so this is where I was really making people get uncomfortable. <laughs> I would be, you know, talking about the way Jesus put mud on the blind man's eyes and then told him to go to the, the sacred waters and to wash his eyes off. And here 
I, I invited everyone to, you know, we're not, we're not meant to walk this really tight line, but that there's something about the earth, the water that Jesus is using to bring healing, that there's something about the return to our, our origin and breaking rules by going into sacred waters that was not permitted. And so then inviting the whole congregation to like, will you touch the earth and, and mark your eyes? And will you wash your eyes? And, and will you see? And so, you know, at the end of at the end of a service, we're all covered in mud. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And and then we wash it off. Uh, so so there, these are some of the ways where, yeah, I, I think performance art has definitely given me this permission to move into that discomfort and th- that dis-ease. Not, again, not, not just to be provoking, but that it's on to something good, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And that then I think has allowed me then to do that in my work as a ritual maker as mm-hmm. well. I love seeing the intersection points between the art the faith element, and then really just becoming a whole person and how what the work that you're doing ties in the creative with the spiritual and also brings us to understand our own narrative better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it goes back to the grounding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love the tangible, the use of mud. You know, uh, this is a side trail and I'll probably edit this out. But I did something very similar one time. I have a bit of performance artist in my background as well. And I did a performance at a coffee shop one time and I covered myself in mud and then I bathed myself off at the same time while I was only wearing a burlap sack. (laughs) 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 And the guy that was performing with me, he was an industrial noise artist. He's actually been on Makers and Mystics before a few seasons back. And so he's just playing all kinds of noise. But I don't think the coffee shop was the right context for that ritual. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I just want my latte. (laughs) Exactly. They didn't want to be baked. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Uh, Well, tell me some more about your performance art. Share with me some of your experiences as a performance artist and how that plays into, because you were talking earlier about the audience and the art. And I've always been a proponent that the audience completes our art. And I'd love to know some of your experiences of coming to the table as a performance artist and, and also a therapist, how all these things work together. Mm-hmm, yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> it can be a bit messy sometimes, but yes. yeah, so there's this one painting, it's Manet's Olympia, and it's a reclined nude, and she's kind of typical of a lot of the reclined nudes in some of the 18th, 19th century, um, and Renaissance also art making, but this one, she's covering her genitals and she's looking at the viewer in this more confrontational way. And so I remember seeing that painting and being like, that is, that's performance art. It's saying, will you look and actually look and engage me? Uh, will you not just consume me and walk away? And I think that's, that's part of what I love about it is that it's, I mean, you can walk away, but you're also left with this residue of I'm not engaging this. And then if you don't walk away, then you have to wrestle as as an audience, like what's coming up in me? And I had, this is going to be a little gruesome, but there was a woman in my cohort and she was, you know, very curious, very adventuresome in terms of what she's what she was willing to let her body undergo. But she did this piece where she found a way to to actually sew her eyelids shut without without causing any bleeding, and apparently not a lot of pain. And she did it once in my class, and then she did it another time at a gallery. And I, as I was sitting there watching her, I'm at this point. I'm probably 21, and 
you know, being introduced to power dynamics between men and women more, more explicitly than I ever had been. Mm. And I'm watching her do this piece where it's this notion of what domesticity does to the female. Like when we ask females to become domestic, we're asking them again to not look and not to say that all being domestic is inherently like blinding, but I think the ways in which women have been handled and placed there's this asking of, will you close your eyes and not look? And it was for this first moment of, for me as, as the audience, where I am really understanding this so deeply. And I'm also, you know, cringing because it's so painful to watch someone sew their eyelids shut, as you can imagine. I'm sure your audience is cringing right now. <laughs> um, but there's something about that physical sensation that allowed my mind then to make sense of, oh, I, I, this is what I, this is the cost that has been on my own body, on my mother's, on my grandmother's, on my great grandmother's. And how do I want to open my eyes more? And how do I want to, and how do I want to do that? And so, yeah, I think there's these moments where when we allow ourselves to engage in the, in the performance, you're never left with just neutrality, you know, with the performance art, you know, the people, the people at the coffee shop, they're, they, they probably still remember you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Every time they drink their coffee, they're like, I remember him. That's right. <laughs> but I think that's a lovely thing because it's something that we're working with. It's something that we have to engage if we're willing to, what was that? What, why was I so unnerved? Or why did I want to just flick that away? Or, you know, all the different responses. Why did I want to draw nearer to this piece? What was it about that? action that I really, I was really drawn to. And so, yeah, again, I think it, it allows us to not just be passive in our onlooking, but requires a certain action and activity. And I I also love providing that for people. So I, I love even the idea that this really confronts our tendency to be consumers as those that engage art, that, that sometimes we approach art with certain preconceived notions about what the art is supposed to give to us. And this confronts that as visceral Mm -hmm. as that act is to be able to engage art with a different set of expectations than even just receiving aesthetic beauty or just receiving something that comforts what you're saying causes us to engage it from a whole different paradigm, I would think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I want to ask you a question, and this goes back to what you were telling me about even the performance art that you did at your church service. And you talked to me earlier about when you attended art school and that you really had this understanding of God as a rigid, moralistic being, so to speak. But that began to shift for you when you created art that was intensely raw and honest, much like the example you just gave. And at the same time, it was very controversial. But when we were talking earlier, you began to tell me about seeing God through performance acts. And what I love about that is that it reminds me of some of the prophets of the Old Testament, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. These guys were were doing some crazy stuff in the middle of the town square. You know, they were the original performance artists. But uh, tell me how you've begun to see God through performance art and through some of the more controversial things that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I remember in my class, there were some of the, the most honest pieces that I had ever witnessed. And because it was, they were using their body. I mean, some of that meant there was nudity or that there was actions that were a bit, you know, a bit unnerving. Um, And not to say that I was in agreement with everything that was being done, but I think what felt really clear is that these people are genuinely 
like working out something that is not just for catharsis. It's not just self-indulgent. There's, there was like something very universal about what they were doing. And I couldn't, I couldn't step away from it, even though I had people in the background, family, friends that were like, get out. You know, I had my, my dad was like, I'm going to the dean and I'm talking, I'm going to talk to the dean. You are not to go back to this class. He never did that. But there was this sense of it was very threatening. And I get, I get in some ways, if you're not in the class, not experiencing it, it's harder. It, there's, there's a little bit of, a, of, a, of a, a gap in the translation. But there was something of, again, like, how do I trust what's happening in me? That there's something very genuine, very honest, that is really compelling. Mm-hmm. And I think that led me then into more of therapy where, again, like, being honest felt really dangerous at times, or it was that I couldn't trust myself enough to really bring my honesty. And I couldn't trust myself enough because there were certain rigidity, certain morality that would kind of ask me to foreclose. Mm -hmm. And so when I went into grad school for counseling and psychology, it was for the first time in my practicum experience where there was more of this fluid, open space to, why don't you explore that little inkling that's there? Like, why don't you let yourself actually put more language to it and see like what's happening inside of you? What is your intuition? What is your instinct? What are your instincts saying? And so it was this kind of first, well, I guess besides my performance art class, my second experience of really being able to explore what was happening for me. And I think in that, I think the dialogue between God and I really began to shift because some of the facades were being shed and I didn't feel this need to cover as much. And then I think realizing the more that I step into the intricacies of who I am and who I'm supposed to be and who I'm I'm meant to be, there was something just like a lot more genuine and and I didn't feel like I needed to put God on the, the forefront all the time. Mm-hmm. Like there was something of like, I, I trust that God is here and I don't have to name it. I don't have to say, God is good. God, you know, and, right. and, and one of my professors was like, you know, if you look at the Bible, like God is never at the forefront. He's always in the backdrop. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't want to be front and center stage. And so I think there's something of, yeah, there, there's less of this need of saying like, you know, naming God's here, God's here. And more of a trusting in, I, I made an image and there's something about that that I'm working out. And it's obviously not perfect, but I need to give more credence to what's happening for me and being able to explore that and play with it and make meaning out of it. So mm-hmm. that's beautiful. I love that. Well, tell me, this is a personal question then. Tell me, what are some of the rituals that you've cultivated in your own life that help unlock creativity in you? Oh, that's a good one. No, can't be a hypocrite now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, creativity. Um, Let's see. I, I will do cold showers. So I think there's something there. I have a favorite union uh, psychologist by the name of Marion Woodman. And she was this stunning writer on the psyche. And one of the things she, she talks about is that in the heat of reflection or in the heat of trying to figure out something, what you need to do is to go jump in a lake, go jump in the ocean. Like there you will have the dilution will come to you in the instincts. And so that has been a diehard thing that I love doing where it's like there's something of going back to more of this primal state, trying to survive, <laughs> <laughs> getting myself, again, getting myself uncomfortable. So... You know, whether that is like doing a long hike or jumping into water. I mean, just recently I did, I did one. It wasn't necessarily for creativity's sake, but I did a a ritual for myself with some dear friends around aging. 
because I just realized like I am I am not blessing my face as I as I'm growing older. Like I think it's it's harder to see age, and yet when I really stop and think about my face tells all of this, the really significant stories of my life. Like, why would I want to wash that away? Why would I want to, you know, smooth that out? So I knew I needed to do something like more, more tangible, more physical and to be witnessed and that to be honest, I think that like, I think I've covered that up. Like I didn't, I don't want to tell people that I am, I fear aging or that I care even that I, you know, that there's vanity even in me. Um, and so there was something about that confession that felt really important. Um, and not as a way of indebting myself, but more as a way of like, this is, this is how I, I want to live more honestly. And then also I want to bless my face. And so finding ways to do that with your friends really, I mean, I think again, it sends me into more of a creative place afterwards. Mm-hmm. So I think there's something of engaging like the things that I'm struggling with, and finding ways to marking them that allow for there to be an opening mm-hmm. and to, okay, how then do I want to, I want to do more around aging, like feeling really impassioned after that, where I want to change the narrative of how we deal with old people, how we deal with our elderly. And so there's something of like a creative energy that began to flow through me. And that is, you know, still with me right now where I, I really want to do more artwork and I want to have more conversations around, yeah, around growing old. Mm-hmm. So those are a few of the ways. Yeah, yeah. No, that's beautiful. And and on that point specifically, I think that's something so important for our country and for yeah. and for our generation. You know, in in some ways, youth is seen as the pinnacle, whereas in in many other and even indigenous cultures, uh, the elders are actually what you aspire to. And and I love flipping our own cultural narrative on its head with what you're doing. Oh, we need that so bad. <laughs> <laughs> we do. Yeah. We'll have to do a whole other podcast episode to I cover that to. one. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this then. Why is ritual making important for us as a people? Like, tell me why I need to have rituals in my life. Uh, you need to have rituals in your life because your life matters. There is a holiness to each of us. And so if that's true, then I think we need to have actions that say this is set apart. So. You know, whether it's a celebration or whether it is grief that you need to move through, it's a way of, of naming to yourself, like, this is set apart. This needs to be set apart. This is significant. And I think we need to be witness, too. That's a really important piece to the ritual making for me is that I'll do it in like one-on-one for someone, but oftentimes I, I want people to have a few people there to be these signposts. After they leave the ritual, they can come back and say, do you remember when I did that? Like, do you remember what I was holding? So it's almost like they become these living memory markers for, for the ritually. And so I think that's just, it's, it's, we need those moments of, yeah, we can have really fun parties. We can, you know, have a cake, but there's something of, but do you know, like, do you know how much your life matters? And do you know the meaning of your life right now? Like, I think there's something so imperative that we have a sense of where we're going. Cause I think we often, because we don't have those actions, because we're, you know, we're not coming from indigenous, a lot of us aren't coming from indigenous places where we have these very robust practices that help us enter into adulthood or enter into becoming a teenager, you know, becoming a a woman or a man or what have you, you know? And so there's, there's something of like, we don't have these markers along the way to help us orient and help us know, like, this is where I'm at in my life and this is what I need to do and what I need to undergo. So yeah, I think it makes our life a lot richer and certainly more meaningful and more communal too. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Heather, thank you so much for spending this time with me on Makers and Mystics. I really love the work that you're doing and I appreciate you taking the time with me. Thanks so much, Stephen. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Please be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and our community at The Breath and the Clay. Starting on Wednesday, April 1st, our patrons and creative collective will be reading and discussing the book Art and Fear each Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. If you'd like to join along, you can register to become a monthly patron at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links and opportunities to join our online events and discussions. Ending bumper music for this episode is provided by Aaron Strumpel. And until next week, my friends, keep creating. The world needs your art.